Yes, sir. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are listening from. Uh, this is the voice of A.B. Melchizedek, your servant, serving you all the way from the UK today. All things considered, today we will be tying up <clears throat> the loose end that we have been bringing forward. And what is that loose end that the Bible, on the one hand, is telling us we are holy, and on the other hand, we are being instructed to be holy. So the writer of Hebrews says, by one sacrifice, Jesus has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So one sacrifice has perfected them, yet they are still being sanctified. Peter, on the other hand, persuades his audience to be holy as God is holy. And we looked at that uh, in context during the previous episode. But despite this injunction, he acknowledges that he's writing to a holy nation who have been redeemed, who have been called out. So what is the resolution of this seeming conundrum? And in a nutshell is this. that while Christ's sacrifice is what makes us holy, we do have a responsibility, if you would, to conduct ourselves in a manner that aligns with that nature. So, we are holy by nature because we are in Christ. We've put faith in that sacrifice. So that sacrifice is what cleanses us, is what purifies us, is what sets us apart to God, or rather is the instrumentality, is the instrumentality through which God sets us apart for himself. So God sets us apart to himself through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That doesn't change. So in his estimation, we are holy. That does not change. As long as a man has faith in Christ, he is holy before God. But this man now has a responsibility to let his outward, his outward conduct and the way he lives his life and the way he conducts himself the way he speaks, the way he behaves. He has to let that align with that reality of his holiness in Christ. So, for example, if you look at First Thessalonians 4, First Thessalonians 4, 
It says, verse 3, for this is the, uh, let me start from verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we give you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. I don't know if this rings a bell to you. Remember that portion of Hebrews we read? Where it says, Lo, I come in the volume of book is written of me. I delight to do your will. Bones offerings and sacrifices for sin you wouldest not, but a body you have prepared for me. And it says, By the which will we have been sanctified. So the will of God, by virtue of that portion of Hebrews 10, is that we, his people, be sanctified unto him. So that's the same sentiment Paul is echoing here, that the will of God is our sanctification. But who has done that will of God that ensures we are sanctified? Jesus. Remember, by one sacrifice, he has perfected forever. But then he goes on in verse 3 of Thessalonians to say that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. So there is a conduct aspect to it. So the will of God is sanctification. And it is Jesus that has done that will of God. But then in, if that's in response to that will of God that has been done, what do we now do? Conduct. We conduct ourselves in a manner that aligns with that will of sanctification. Abstain from sexual immorality. And if you read the entire New Testament, you would see that is the crux of everything. That lets your behavior reflect the reality of your salvation so you see again that there is a tension but again it's by no means an intense one but there is a tension between your works and the grace of god but again that tension we would save it for the next episode because that's where we would uh, look at good works and where good works and conduct comes in so let's just save that for the next episode but suffice it to say that what we've been building up to and it's not interesting at the end of the day but it's just that simple that your conduct should reflect the reality of the work christ has done you don't do the work but your conduct ought to reflect the work that has been done And if you even read further in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, if you go to verse 5, it says, Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So, again, and that's why I always insist you listen to previous episodes because as the more we read it, the more it makes sense and you even understand things we discussed before better. But you see again that the overarching picture here is do not do the things the Gentiles do. That is the overarching implication of this. 
and who are the Gentiles in this context? Obviously, everybody who is not a Jew is a Gentile. But a Gentile in this context is somebody who has not known God. It even says that there, 4 verse 5. It says, in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So somebody who has not been saved. There ought to be a distinction between a saved person and an unsaved person. So there is a responsibility on our part for us to conduct ourselves in a manner different from those who do not know God. That, my friend, is your part in holiness. So, again, we've been drawing this emphasis and it really, really needs to be emphasized over and over again that it is not your conduct or your holiness that saves you no peter who commands that you should be holy as god is holy he's careful to emphasize the finished work of christ and the gospel in all of that and in the leviticus we quoted god emphasizes that it is him who sanctifies It is him who sanctifies. And we can illustrate the fact that it is God that sanctifies with a very beautiful passage that I love so much from the Old Testament. First Samuel, the 21st chapter, and the first verse. And this is a story that has to do with David. And if you remember, David is a man after God's own heart. Why is he a man after God's own heart? I strongly believe is because he was a new, he was an Old Testament character with a New Testament mentality. He looked beyond all the ceremony and rituals of the law to the heart of everything. And the heart of everything that he saw tended to be the heart of God as well. So, for instance, after he committed adultery with that child, <laughs> forgive me, with um, Bathsheba, rather, and had that child, he did not one day go to the temple to sacrifice for his sins. Why? He understood that sacrifice and burnt offerings God did not desire. So, what did he do? He prayed and repented before God. I think he wrote about it in one of the Psalms. It says, sacrifices and offerings for sin, you would not say a contrite heart is what God is looking for. So he saw that the heart of the matter was repentance, not animal sacrifices. He saw that the heart of the matter was relying on God's mercy and God's goodness rather than 
physically killing any lamb. So this was a man, if there is any Old Testament character that had a PhD in New Testament and New Covenant affairs, it has to be Dr. David. First Samuel 21, 1-7. It says, Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David. Context, this is when he was running away from Saul. Jesus Christ makes reference to this story in Matthew 12. Why are you alone and no one is with you? So David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you, or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have at least kept themselves from women. Then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly women have been kept from us about three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy. And the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there, but the show bread which had been taken from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Uh, seven is not relevant. Sorry, one to six. So what is what we are emphasizing here? We're emphasizing what David said in verse five. He said the bread is in effect common. Notice the priest said. There is no holy bread. There is no common bread. All they have is holy bread. And David says, no, the bread you are calling holy bread is in effect common. The only thing about it is that it's consecrated in the vessel, a holy vessel. So it was just common bread in a holy vessel. Nothing separated that bread from any other bread you could get anywhere. So that is a picture of the believer's holiness today. You see it? So, because the ordinary believer, common bread, is in the vessel of the divine Son of God, the consecrated vessel, that body that was prepared for the sacrifice to consecrate us, according to Hebrews 10, 5 to 10, that body, because we are in that body, that is why we are holy. Just the way the common bread was in that vessel, and that is the only reason that common bread became holy bread. So we common people are become holy people or become holy saints just by virtue of the fact, not because the bread was sweet, not because the bread, you know, was quality agege bread. You know, for non-Nigerians listening, agege bread is a very, very sweet kind of, you know, it's a fantastic kind of bread. You know, those days, 
if you if you eat one agege bread, it will hold you for you know it, it can it can be in your stomach for two days. It won't go down. That's how strong agege bread used to be those days. You know, very nice bread, although it became nonsense initially. But away from agege bread, because I'm beginning to salivate now. I miss agege bread. So the bread was not sweeter than any other bread. It was not better than any other bread. The bread had not done better works than any other bread. The bread could not preach beautiful sermons. Nothing the bread could do. But the bread was in a consecrated vessel. So if believers understood that their holiness did not lie in themselves, but in who they are in, we would have a lot more compassion on people who don't know God. We would have much, you know, the people we look at with contempt and think we are better than, you know, just because in our head we think we live, we live better lives than they live. If we knew our holiness came only because of who we are in, our hearts will not be to criticize or castigate or calumniate or ostracize those people. Our aim would be to try to get them in that vessel in which we are in so that they can become holy to God as well. Remember the high priest wore that mitre on his head. And on that mitre, a mitre is that um, those things bishops wear. But on the high priest mitre, it was to have an engraving saying, Holiness to the Lord. Holiness to to the Lord, holiness to the Lord, not by virtue of conduct, to the Lord. So to the Lord, you are holy. Why? Because you are in that vessel. So any, the dirtiest human being in the world that comes into that vessel becomes holy. So, tying it up, and I foresee this will be another short episode again, but I mean, if there's nothing to say, why keep you longer than necessary? <clears throat> but tying it up, because uh, I mean, the main topic we want to discuss today is not, not, not anything special, but uh, yeah, let's just tie up this, what we've been building on. So to tie this up, righteousness and holiness are two separate things. They are two things God requires of us. God is righteous. God is holy. And God requires righteousness and holiness from those who stand before him. You can't serve him without these things. Look, the first chapter, 74th to 75th verses. Uh, for context here, this was during the 
birth of John the Baptist. Um, you know, when Zachariah and Elizabeth, they wanted a child. And then they were getting old. And one day while Zachariah was in the temple serving his cause, uh, the angel Gabriel appears to him, tells him he will have a child. He said, uh, um, that seeing he's an old man, how will he know these things will come to pass? And the angel says, what? I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you. But you will be dumb for, you know, a season until you see what is going to happen. So it was after John, the baby had been born and his mouth was losing. That is when he began to speak these things in prophecy. So if you start, if you look at it from 67, it says now uh, his father Zachariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, you know, there was a prophecy. But then if you look at 74 to 75, it says to grant us, and he's talking about the uh, uh, ministry of Jesus. You know, I don't know. I'm just addicted to context. Sorry, let's start from 68. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's speaking in prophecy now. Obviously, the visitation came with the birth of Jesus, but the redemption came with his death. He has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Talking about salvation as the context. Salvation in who? In Christ. In the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives before him all the days of our lives so the purpose of redemption the purpose of redeeming us from our enemies you know in this context sin and death and the devil who is their puppet master if you think if you are a bit lost there kindly refer to season one where we discuss these things I believe is uh, the gospel and the world or one of those two episodes. I can't remember which one, but we discussed it in season one, how the devil was hiding behind sin and death to wreak havoc. And he exposed himself when he masterminded sort of, in a sense, the cry, the death of Christ, you know? So, <clears throat> um, So the whole purpose of redemption from all of that is so that we could stand before God serving him in holiness and righteousness. So why are both required? 
because if you want to deal with God, you have to deal with him on his terms. And his terms are terms of righteousness and holiness to a degree man cannot satisfy as a result of his fallen nature. So in salvation, those things become ours. Righteousness, which is being acquitted, not standing in any form of danger of wrath in the presence of God. Holiness being consecrated and separated to him. So these two things now become the believer's nature. Righteousness becomes the believer's nature. Holiness becomes the believer's nature. Ephesians 4, 22-24. that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the sinful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to god in true righteousness and holiness so this new man this new creation I mean, and who creates the new man, obviously, is Christ. Because if you go to Ephesians 2.15, it tells you, Ephesians 2.15, having abolished in him in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so as to create himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So he created in himself one new man by his death. So it is this new man that Christ has created, we are admonished to put on. Why is that so? Because this new man, his very nature is God's nature. It's created according to God. That is like God in righteousness and holiness. So that becomes this man's nature. So both of these things, holiness and righteousness, are in Christ, and they both form the basis of our salvation. And that is the reason we can stand before God. In essence, Jesus is our righteousness, Jesus is our holiness. As John writes, in him there is no sin, 1 John 3, 5. And it is because the believer is in him that God sees no sin in them. In him is no sin. Link it up with that, with that first story. In this vessel, in this consecrated vessel, there is no sin. So whatever is 
in that vessel in the estimation of God is sinless. In him is no sin. So Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our holiness. And if you allow me to illustrate this in him point with a story I love so much from the book of Numbers. Numbers, the 23rd chapter. And uh, just for some context, what happened there is as the Israelites were on their journey, a certain king became very, you know, he started to become restless about the Israelites. He was afraid of them. So he hired a certain prophet called Balaam. Now, this Balaam was not just any prophet. You know, he's used as a type of a false prophet in the Bible. That is true. But again, if you read the Bible very well, you will see he's used as a type of a perverted prophet. That is a, a real prophet whose heart was torn astray because of gain. So Balaam was really a terrific prophet, a very good prophet. I don't want to get sidetracked, but I don't know, maybe at some point we will do a discussion on Balaam, but no promises on that anyway, because it doesn't really add anything to our knowledge of salvation. But suffice it to say for now that if you read this man's utterances, the way he was able to prophesy, the way he knew exactly what to do, to attract the presence of God, even when God was against the mission. You know, I mean, yeah, let's 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 just not go into that because Balaam is a prophet that really intrigues me on a personal level. But anyway, he calls for Balaam to curse the Israelites. And long story short, Balaam really wants to go because the money is tempting him, but to fulfill all righteousness, he says, I was God. And then God says, don't go. And the king sent more rich people to meet him. And Balaam, you know, asks God again. And God tells him to go and on the road. Anyways, an intriguing story. But long story short, this is what Balaam says the second time. Because the first time, Balaam's, uh, Balak, Balak is the name of the king. He calls Balaam, or he tells Balaam, curse these people. Balaam actually blesses them. And the second time again, Balaam tries to change location. But irrespective of you know how he tried to change location to maybe give him some visual stimulus to inspire his his cursing of them perhaps the message comes again from god and this is the message that balak says uh, balaam says 
Vi starter fra vers 18. Then he took up his oracle and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot reverse it. Observe verse 21. It says, He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. Hmm. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob. Why is this an interesting statement? God said he hasn't seen any iniquity in Jacob. Why is this an interesting statement? Let's go to <laughs> let's go to Numbers eleven. And I hope I'm right here. Verse 1 to 3. Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. For the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses. And when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So he called the name of the place Tabera. Because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. Hmm. The same book of Numbers. Verse 12. Then Moses and Aaron spoke against Moses. Because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. For he had married an Ethiopian woman. So they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? Numbers 13. The whole story of Numbers 13 is they had gotten to the promised land and Moses says, go, enter. And they said, you know what, let's send spies. So they sent 12 spies and then 10 came back saying, you know, the land is good. In fact, all of them agreed that the land was good. But 10 of them said, look, the people in that land are massive. They are going to have us for breakfast. We were like uh, grasshoppers in our sight and that's how we were in their own sight. Which begs the question how they knew what they looked like in the other people's sights. Was it their eyes? But anyway, I digress. So that's the context of verse of uh, chapter 14. So what is chapter 14, verse 1? It says, All the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the wilderness. Verse 3, 
Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Verse, uh, chapter 16. Now Korah the son, <laughs> Korah the son of Ezer, the son of Kohath, son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, son of Abiram, rather, sons of Eliab, and on this on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation representing. Representatives of the congregation, men of renown, they gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Numbers 20. Uh, verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron, and the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? Is it not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates? Nor is there any water to drink? Oh, sorry. I take that again. It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. Numbers 21, verse 4. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loads this worthless bread. Notice that the worthless bread is manna that God gave them from heaven. Bread they were not working for. Angels' food, the book of Psalms calls it. I think it's Psalm 78. It says, Man did eat angels' food. When they said, Can God make a table in the wilderness? And now they called it worthless bread. So, what exactly is the point I'm making? God said He saw no iniquity in these same people.
chapter 11 they murmured chapter 12 moses and uh miriam and aaron challenged moses authority chapter 13 and 14 they murmured they refused to go into the land god said they should go into chapter 16 the um sons of korah data manabiram they challenged moses authority chapter 20 they murmured asking for water chapter 21 they murmured again yet god said he saw no iniquity so it's not like there was no iniquity god said he didn't see any iniquity so god was dealing with the israelites not based on the, if it was based on their conduct balaam would have cost them seven ways from sunday Another part in the book of Deuteronomy, when God was recounting this, he said, God turned the cost to a blessing because he loves you, because he loves you, because he loves you. So it was his love for them that made him not see the iniquity in them. And the reason he could rightfully not see the iniquity in them I don't know if I mean yeah I mean, I mean as well just said the reason he did not see iniquity in them apart from the sacrifices they were offering which he instituted if you look at the arrangement of how the tribes were to sit it would have formed a cross a crucifix let me just refer you to the portions in the book of numbers i think it should be numbers either two or three i know it's early in the book of numbers Uh, yeah, Numbers 2. And the Lord spoke, I mean, it's a long, I'm, I'm definitely not going to read everything, but if you look at it, uh, starting from verse 1, and the Lord spoke to, Num, uh, to <laughs> Moses and Aaron, saying, Every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard beside the emblems of his father's house. They shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting. So if you look at that arrangement and visualize it, so God said some tribes are to sit by the east of the tabernacle, some tribes are to sit by the west of the tabernacle, some tribes are to sit by the north and to the south of the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was at the center and all around the tribes would have formed the cross. So when Balaam stood to curse those people, and that's why I believe he kept changing view, what he would have saw from the top was what? The cross. Foreshadowing, of course, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, which was going to be the ultimate sacrifice. So it was on that basis, whenever God saw the way they sat, and whenever God received their sacrifices, on the basis of the cross, 
or on the typology of the cross and on the basis of the sacrifices they were offering, God says, I see no iniquity in these people. I see no iniquity in them. So in like manner, God sees no iniquity in us. All he sees is righteousness and holiness because of the cross and because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So you can see, like we said at the time, that at the beginning, that holiness and righteousness Technically for us is a distinction without a difference because Christ is both to us. That's the only reason it's a distinction without a difference. But lexically, they mean different things. Righteousness being you being justified. Holiness, you being consecrated or separated to God. Righteousness, you having not done anything wrong in the estimation of God. Holiness, you being separated to God. So it's a distinct distinction without a difference because both are in Christ. But having said this, having emphasized over and over that Christ is all and in all, and that our righteousness and holiness have nothing to do with conduct, it begs the question, where does conduct come in? Or where do good works come in? And all things considered, this is what we will be looking at in the next episode. So I hope now, when you think about righteousness, you think about the fact that it is a gift. Romans 5.17, those that receive of the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. It's a gift. And I hope when you think of holiness, you will think of consecration, you being in the vessel. So it's in effect common bread. And notice that when Jesus was referring to the story, in Jesus' estimation, David did nothing wrong. So he agrees with David's estimation of the bread. <clears throat> So it's in effect common bread, but just as in a consecrated vessel. So when you think of holiness, you think of yourself as common bread in the consecrated vessel, the body of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice that perfects us forever. And that when you hear be holy, what comes to your mind is behave differently from people who do not know Christ. Why that is, we will look at that in the next episode. So all in all, remember life is short. In the context of eternity, nothing matters except what you do for the Lord, what you do for the gospel.
life is short. Life is very short, my friend. Life is short. At some point, you are going to stand before God and He's going to ask you what you did with your life. When you look back and see the countless hours you have wasted on things that don't matter, as good as career is, as good as friends are, as good as, you know, playing video games and Netflix and driving around town and, you know, trying to make a living are, you will see they count for nothing on the day you die. All that will matter is what you've done for the kingdom. Like I said in the intro, I strongly believe the worst thing that can happen to a man is hell, definitely. But the second worst thing is to go to heaven and have nothing to be rewarded for. Why don't you make up your mind? And again, these are points we are going to push. They will come up thematically in episodes. But why don't you make that decision to do something for the kingdom? Do something for the kingdom. You have a good voice, sing. Put songs out there glorifying Christ. You know how to play instruments? Play. Compose for the kingdom. Do something for the kingdom. Not everybody has to hear it. Not everybody has to see it. But even if it's one person, remember the good shepherd, he leaves 99 sheep to go for the one. And when he finds that one, he rejoices. Don't tell me one person doesn't matter. On Instagram, if you have one follower, you are a potato. On YouTube, if you have one follower, no, nobody regards you. But in the kingdom, if you bring one person to Christ, you are a star in the records of heaven. Think about that. Take care.